Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Before getting started today, I want to send my thoughts and support to all of you listening. You're here each week because you love travel and suddenly it feels so out of reach. It's a very frightening time for all of us, of course, but I hope this episode acts as a bit of escapism, some light relief in a dark time. Today is the season finale and I'm honoured to be joined by a legend of the travel world. Back in 1972, Tony Wheeler and his wife Maureen decided to drive from London through Asia and onto Australia on what was known as the Hippie Trail. Along the way, they realised there was a real shortage of information about the countries they were visiting, and so they decided to write a guidebook together. That was the now seminal Southeast Asia on a shoestring, and from there, Lonely Planet was born. Lonely Planet went on to become the world's largest travel guidebook publisher, selling hundreds of millions of books. I'm sure all of us have a well-leafed Lonely Planet guide on our shelves that has been a trusty companion on our travels. Tony and Maureen now live in Melbourne, Australia, so I was very lucky to grab some time with Tony when he was over in London at the beginning of the month. We spoke before the coronavirus became a global pandemic, although you'll hear that it had impacted his travels on the way to get here. So... It's time to be transported to some of the weird and wonderful corners of the world that make up Tony's travel diaries. From Bulgaria and Turkmenistan to Armenia and the Maldives, they may be only in our dreams now, but hopefully it won't be too long before they become a reality again. Tony Wheeler, welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. It's such an honour to have you on here. How are you? I am just fine. I, you know, I'm 14 days out of um, Japan and Hong Kong. And, you know, you, I mean, if it, if it was yesterday, you wouldn't be allowed to talk to me because you'd say, no, I don't want to get anywhere near you. But 14 yeah. days, now I'm officially okay. What were you doing while you were there? Um, Hong Kong, I was just in transit through the extraordinarily empty airport. Mm. Uh, poor Hong Kong, or poor Cathay Pacific Airlines, because they've been, first of all, devastated by the um, democracy protest movements. Yeah. A great thing, but um, it didn't do the airline any good. Mm-hmm. And now coronavirus, COVID-19, has just emptied the airport out. It's just remarkably empty. But then I was in, um, in Japan to, to go to a university conference on over-tourism. Interesting. I, That's something I wanted to chat to you about later on. Yeah, actually. well, my, one of my friends said afterwards, well, what sort of over-tourism was that? That was over-tourism, there's too much of it, or I am over-tourism. So I've <laughs> been there and done that. And it could be either. But there are no easy answers. Mm. You know, here in Europe, the three cities, they always sort of bring up are Barcelona, Amsterdam, and Venice. Those, yeah. those three are the, the poster child post the children for over-tourism. But I, I think there's, you can look around the world and say there's places that have under-tourism as well. And one of the interesting things, of, if you want to make a case for EasyJets and Ryanair and so on, is that they, they take people to these sort of second cities that they wouldn't go to otherwise. Mm-hmm. And very often, I, I always say my favorite, and I've only been there once, I haven't been back, is Plovdiv 
in Bulgaria. Great city. I loved it. Yeah. You know, just the name alone, people think Plovdiv. Who wants to go to Plovdiv? So what was it like? It was great. It, it's... Um, it's it's the second city of Bulgaria, and Bulgaria, of course, had all sorts of problems. You know, it's got a declining, declining population because the Bulgarians are all leaving for opportunities elsewhere. Mm. Um, but Sofia, the capital, is a very nice city, and Plovdiv. It's got Roman ruins. It's got the odd mosque. It's got um, a very nice pedestrianised main street with nice little bars and restaurants. It's got some Orthodox churches. You can have a great couple of days there. I yeah. really I go for Plovdiv. A good long weekend destination, maybe. So we we obviously have to cover this incredible story of how the Lonely Planet Guide started before we kick off with your travel diaries. Are you able to tell me? Oh, once again, once again. I, you um, must have told the story a million okay, times, I know. Run, run the clock back many, many, many years. We're in the, you know, the end of the swinging 60s and... Um, People are going to India because the Beatles have been there and they're riding the Marrakesh Express. They're doing all those things. Um, it's the era of the hippie trail, although it wasn't called the hippie trail till much later. Anyway, my, my wife and I, we just got married, um, early 20s, and we set out on the hippie trail and we, we drove an old car as far as Afghanistan, sold it there, carried on, ended up in Australia and thought, someone should do a book about this. And that was the start of Lonely Planet. Mm. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, the rest is history, yeah. So tell me about some of the highlights of that drive that oh, stick out in your mind. Oh, the whole trip was a highlight from start to finish. Yeah, so was, the main countries that you travel, I mean... Well, you, you go many. through Europe and, and you know, I, I did it again in the reverse direction three years ago, 2017. No Not quite the same route because you really, I mean, I've been back to Afghanistan, but you really can't drive through Afghanistan with any sense and sensibility. But um, so you went further north. And in, of course, in the hippie trail era, you couldn't go through China. You couldn't go through the stands. So this trip, we came through China. We came through the stands. And, and then pretty much the same, Iran, Turkey, Europe. How was it going back to those countries that you perhaps hadn't oh, been well, back I, to? Well, I've been back to Iran a number of times over the years. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's a fascinating country. I've got a lot of time for Iran. I just wish they wouldn't take hostages, like mm. two women who are, you know, imprisoned there at the moment for no good reason at all. Mm. You know, the Iranians, they, they're sensible one day and nuts the next. Yeah. Um, but I love Iran. Uh, Turkey, we all love Turkey. It's a great country to travel around. And again, I've been there quite a few times over the years. Um, Europe, who doesn't like Europe? <laughs> Driving through the stands? Well, it was, that was really interesting as well. I mean, they were, they were the, the area that I really wanted to go to on this trip. So I'd been to Kazakhstan before, but I hadn't been to any of the other stands. And I've still got, I still haven't been to Tajikistan. But so I've which been, were the stands you went to on this we one? We went through um, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Kyrgyzstan. Wow. I'm good at reeling them off now. <laughs> I've also, over the years, been to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kurdistan. So I've been to a few stands. We're pretty well-traveled through the well, stands. Well, you name a stand. And okay, so the one that seems most exotic to me, is, or the one that I know the least about, is Turkmenistan. So what is that yeah, like? Yeah, that, that, that was, you know, I, I say now that the, the, the maddest country I've ever been to is North Korea. But um, Turkmenistan has to run at a close second. Really? Now, the capital, Ashgabat, it is sort of, it's Pyongyang crossed with Dubai, crossed with Las Vegas, you know, and it's got a ruler who's sort of one step behind or one step sideways from the Kim, the Kim sons and fathers and grandfathers. Right. And it's full of 
absolutely nutty architecture. So Las Vegas, so is it like very grand and glitzy? Oh, full of grand and glitz. So there's money there to make Well, like no, that. not really. I mean, it, like, I mean, there's lots of places that have no money at all, but the, rule, the evil ruler still grabs whatever money there is mm. and spends it on, in, in the case of... Um, of Turkmenistan, lots of white marble and gold. And there's this mm. wonderful building in the the, the monument to Turkmenis, Turkmeni independence or something. And clearly what he did was he took a toilet plunger and he gave it to his architect and said, build this, except make it out of marble and gold and make it, um, you know, half a kilometre high. <laughs> well, a couple of hundred metres high anyway. And, you know, it looks like it – what's it called locally? It's called the toilet plunger. It looks just like a toilet plunger. <laughs> and that's pretty typical of the place. So is that one of the key sites that you'd look out for if you Oh, absolutely. There? You know, the, 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 the predecessor to the current ruler, the guy who called himself the Turkmen Bashi, the father of all Turks, loved gold statues, including he had one which, you know, it, it, and it's still there, but it doesn't, doesn't rotate anymore. But it used to be standing on top of this building with his arms outstretched, all in solid gold – and it faced the rising sun in the morning, and it rotated during the day to face the setting sun in the evening. No. So let's kick off with your travel diaries now, with chapter one, and that is your earliest childhood travel memory. I was born in Britain, but I left when I was about a year and a half old, and I didn't really come back until I was, until I was 16. And where did you move to? Um, first of all, I moved to Pakistan, where my father was working, so I, I spent the first... After the first year of my life, the first next five years of my life in Pakistan, and my younger brother and younger sister were both born there. And um, you know, I've got some really when you're really small memories. You don't have a you can't sort of remember the whole thing, but you have little memories that, that stand out. And I've got a bunch of very very clear little memories. Mm-hmm. And I some time ago, and I've been back to Pakistan more recently than that, but about fifteen or maybe twenty years ago. I went back to Karachi, where I grew up, and went, you know, looking. I had the address of the where the apartment was we lived and went looking for it, and I remembered it really clearly. It was just as I remembered it. And I've got a bunch of memories of my mother's Morris Minor getting stuck in floods and getting a squad of people to push us out and camels and walking mm. down the beach and a, a whale being towed into the harbour. And One of the really funny things was I've got the, this memory of going out with my father and I've got a photograph actually of all three of us in the family, my younger brother and younger sister and my parents on this sailing dhow in Karachi Harbour. And my mother died in Australia and at her funeral I showed that photograph and I said, here we are sailing to Australia, my mother and father... <laughs> <laughs> and there were some kids there who thought, wow, we didn't know that great-grandma sailed to Australia. But I, I went down to the harbour and um, there were the sailing downs were still there. Oh. And I went down to have a chat with the guys and they said, well, do you want to come out on the harbour? Sure, I said. And we went out on Karachi Harbour and fished for crabs, just like I did when I was five years old. Fantastic. Oh, that's lovely. It um, is. And what was the kind of atmosphere like living there at that time? It was just after partition. So, you know, Karachi was chaotic because it, was, it had grown from being a very small city to being a seaport, to being a huge um, city full of refugees, Muslim refugees from India. And um, India and Pakistan, of course, were facing each other off almost immediately. Mm. And Karachi was temporarily the capital until they built the capital further north. So I guess it was chaotic. And yet, you know, I've got, you know, when you're a little kid, everything is normal. This is 
how life is. Mm, mm. So it's a place that feels special to you now? Yeah, I've, I've the most recent trip to Pakistan, which wasn't that long ago. My, what Maureen and I went to um, went to Pakistan and um, got a, a car and a driver and travelled up the Karakoram Highway and you know effectively over the Himalaya and into China. Wow, what to a Xinjiang province. It was a great trip. It was a really good trip. So how long did that drive take? Um, about three weeks. Three weeks. Yeah. And stopping off. Um, yeah, we stopped somewhere every night. And yeah. then, you know, we crossed the border and on, on into China. Um, and Xinjiang, of course, is the place that the Chinese, after Tibet, they dislike the most or dislike their citizens there the most or whatever. But uh, and, and, of course, Pakistan had no tourists at all. We stayed in some beautiful places. And you're thinking... I feel really sorry for the people running this place because it's an old castle, you know, and it's just great. And they've got no tourists. So if somebody They're making was, a little push right now to get some tourists back. Well, that was what I was thinking. So if, if you were a tourist and you wanted to go there and you wanted to go to the right places, where would you recommend somebody could maybe head to first? I don't know. I mean, you know, Pakistan is, has always been up and down. And, you know, you can go, that, that time when I went, it must have been in the 90s, when I went back to Karachi. Mm-hmm. Well, I've only been, ba- been back to Karachi that once. And Karachi is a fascinating city. If, you, if it was safe the week you were there, it'd be great. But basically, people, they go to the north. They go to Lahore, which is one of the great cities of the Indian subcontinent. Uh, there, there's Agra, there's Calcutta, there's Delhi, there's Lahore. So Lahore you go to. Um, for all sorts of good reasons. And you go to Islamabad because um, that's the capital and it's very interesting as well. And you go up into the mountains, you know, the the Pakistan side of Kashmir, which the Indians claim they possess and they don't. Um, and, you know, if you can, you go up the Karakoram Highway. And great. Wonderful. So chapter two is the first place that you fell in love with. I've never been to a place I haven't fallen in love with. I've Really? I like wow. them all. Well, I, I lived in Pakistan for the first few years of my life, and then I actually came back to England very briefly, a year and a half perhaps, and lived with my grandparents um, because um, I was starting school and there were no... I went to a sort of a kindergarten thing in Pakistan, but there weren't any schools we could go to at that point. So I did my first year of school in England, and then my father got transferred... I think Pakistan was a hardship posting, so they then transferred him to a, you know, easy living posting, Nassau in the Bahamas. So oh. I then had a couple of years in the Bahamas. Oh, how wonderful. It was, you know, and that, that again was, you know, as a kid, you know, it was wonderful. I mean, I learned to snorkel there when I was however, however old I was. I remember when I mean seven or something. Mm. And, um, you know, the beaches and the coral reefs and all that stuff and had a wonderful couple of years but then um after the you know pleasant posting in the um, bahamas then we ended up in the states and i did all of my high school years almost all of my high school years in the states so you've lived in europe australia mm. asia north america yeah. what would you say is your favorite continent that you've lived in i've liked them all you know i we we lived in san francisco i i, I lived those how many years? Six, seven years in in, um, in the Midwest and then the East Coast when I was a child. And then um, with my two children, when they were very small, we lived in San Francisco for a year and a half when we were setting up the Lonely Planet office there. Right. Um, and we all loved San Francisco. We all had a great time there. What and kind of things did you get up to while you were living there? Oh, what well, were your I was working. Things? I was setting up the Lonely Planet office. So, so was, it was you know, busy. It was very busy. I was extremely busy. Um, lots and lots of work. Um, 
but it was great. You know, we did we traveled around and um, went down to South America for a spell and um, traveled around the States a fair bit. Um, it was great, really good. Um, and then 10 years after that, we were just sitting at home one evening, and Maureen and I, and we were saying that by this time, 10 years have passed, so our kids are, instead of being two and four, they're 12 and 14. And um, Maureen and I said, wasn't that great that year in San Francisco? Wouldn't it be great to live somewhere else for a year? And we said, oh, you know, if we were going to do it, we really have to do it right now because you couldn't pull your kids out of school in their last year or two of school. But when they've still got three or four years to go. And we thought, let's move to Paris because we had a French office at that stage. So we moved to Paris for a year. Kids came home from whatever they were doing that night. And we said, guess what, kids? We're moving to Paris. And both of them said, no, our lives will end. Their lives didn't end at all. Did they love it in the end? Yeah, they did love it in the end. And we were there for it. And again, at the end of that year, if someone had said, you can't go back home, you have to continue living in Paris, you know, the doors have been closed to you, I would have said, fine, I really like Paris. I could, I could imagine improving my French and living there long term. What so, made you pick Paris? Just because we, it was a, a city we could move to that we had been to in, you know, short term, mm. we, a few days or a week, multiple times, um, liked very much. And we had an excuse to go there because there was the French office. Mm. So, you know, I, I worked out of the French office every day. Even They didn't really need me. They were doing everything fine themselves. But, you know, it was a good place to work from. Oh, how lovely. Yeah, mm, Paris, that sounds ideal. It was. It was perfect. So... You obviously preempted the the gap year trend. Um, yeah, because the gap year hadn't. You know, back in Australia when we first arrived there, we arrived in Australia in seventy two, and lived. We lived there for a year, all of seventy three. That's where we started Lonely Planet, and then we left to come back to come back to London. Um, and after twelve months, we'd got as far from Sydney as Singapore. It took a long time to get to Singapore, and um, we decided. Why don't we, maybe we won't go back to London. Maybe we'll go and have another year in Australia. So then we've had a year in Sydney. We'll try Melbourne this time. We'll have a year in Melbourne. And then we'll go back to London. But then that year in Melbourne, we sort of got stuck. And we've been there ever since. Except for the year in Paris and the year in San Francisco. (laughs) And all the time I spend elsewhere. So for people who are considering taking um, a gap year, at whatever stage in their life, if they have, say, a few months to travel... What would you recommend that they do? Well, you know, the, the standard gap year thing. I think gap years are wonderful things. I mm. think, you know, young people who have that, that year away, they, they, they learn more in that gap year than they did in their last five years of school and they will the next three years of university or college or whatever mm-hmm. they do or life. Um, so I think gap years are wonderful. And a, a lot of young people come to, to Australia because it's, you know, it's a long way away. It's a foreign country. It's... And that's great. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to travel around. It, it is somewhere different. You do, you know, you will have all sorts of experiences. Um, but it is still an English-speaking place, and it doesn't really get you out of your comfort zone far enough. Um, Southeast Asia, you know, Southeast Asia these days, it, it's so sorted out for you. There's no, there's no way. It's great, you know, and I still travel around Southeast Asia a bit, time to time. I was in Indonesia last year at some places I hadn't been to before. Um, but, you know, again, it's a little bit familiar. So maybe if you want a bit more challenge, you know, go to Africa or go to South America. I don't know. Any, anywhere is great. Mm. Go around Europe, you know. Then, then you can not worry about the, the air miles. You can take do it all by train and bicycling and whatever else. Mm. So uh, you mentioned you were in Indonesia to some place you hadn't been before. Uh, where were you there? I wanted to go to the island of Sumba, which uh, the islands 
off to the, let me get my, my directions right, off to the east of Bali, uh, known as Nusa Tenggara. And there's Lombok, there's Sumbawa, there's um, Timor, there's Flores, all of which are Komodo. You know, they're, they're all interesting for various reasons, and I've been through all of them uh, over the years. But for some reason, I'd never been to Sumba, so I really wanted to go to Sumba. And it's very easy, it's only half an hour flight from Bali, a bit longer if you go by boat and land. But um, I got into, I flew into Bali, spent the night at the airport hotel, next morning got up, flew down to Sumba, um, just arrived cold, I didn't have a hotel booked or anything, um, and organised three or four days travel and went around the island and then flew back to Bali. It looks beautiful. There's a hotel that I know of there called Nihisimba. Right down the very south coast mm. where the surfers go. And extraordinarily expensive. Yes, from what I've heard. No, no, I've not been no. there. But oh, I heard right. that horses <laughs> kind of run through the ocean there. And it looks very kind yeah, of romantic. It is. It's romantic and expensive. And, and the surfing is... Is suppose, I, I, you know, I've never been a surfer. If I, next lifetime, that's something I'll put some time into. Mm-hmm. But um, the surfers rave about Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK. And in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Looking back then at last year, what would you say was your travel highlight? I had quite a few. I'm disappointed if I don't go to a few countries every year that I haven't been to before. Um, And one of the ones I went to last year that I really enjoyed was Armenia. And I'd been to the, you know, the... There's the 
Baltic states that broke away from the Soviet Union, the Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and so on. There's the stands, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and so on. And then there are the, the um, what do we call them? The ones that are between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And I've been to Georgia and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijan quite recently, but I'd never been to Armenia. And, and one of the things that sort of inspired, well, two things inspired me to go to Armenia. One is I've got a good Armenian friend who lives in the States, and I often see her when if I'm in the US, and she always says, Tony, you have to go to Armenia. But I went to see the, the sort of house she has there when I was there. Um, and But the other thing was driving through Iran three years ago, 2017. We drove quite close to the Armenian border. There's a lot of um, Armenian churches across the border. And we went to this one church in um, in Iran, which was just amazing. You know, I say it was one of the most amazing places I've ever been to, the black church, Kara Kalis. And having seen that, I really wanted to see more Armenian churches. And one of the things about Christianity, we sort of think, you know, it happened in what is now Palestine, you know, Bethlehem and all those places, Nazareth and now Jerusalem. And then, you know, it sort of it shifted into Europe and Rome and the Catholic Church and so on. But it didn't. It went the other way at first. So the earliest Christianity is in Syria and um, Turkey and mm. Armenia. Mm. You know, so the, the earliest churches, a lot of them are in Armenia. Mm. So anyway, I went to Armenia and I rented a car and I drove around and I saw fabulous churches. It's a bit like, you know, the, the Burmese, Myanmar, they cannot see a hill without wanting to put a stupa on top of it. Yeah. And the Armenians can't see a, a mountain without wanting to put a church in front of it or a, a ravine without perching a church on the side of it. Fantastic. Oh, it sounds so picturesque. It is very picturesque and very friendly people and lots of vodka and I had a great time in Armenia. Fantastic. Well, mm. chapter three is the trip where you learn the most about yourself. I, you know, I, I think I have to say, I think long trips always have a, a great effect on you. I think that first trip, Maureen and I, we were talking about this, we were at a restaurant talking for a long time, and we were saying that trip is still imprinted on our minds. You know, that was something that we're fortunately never going to get over. Your first trip? The first across, the across Asia one. And we had another year-long trip two years later around Southeast Asia. But that first one across Asia was a wonderful trip. It was just great all the way. And, you know, we met lots of people. We, um, we just had amazing times, saw amazing things and created a lifelong addiction. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that, you know, that was it. That was the cause. And uh, when you were reminiscing with Maureen, what were the kind of places that, you, that stand out from that trip? <sighs> Do you know, it all stood out. Um, one of the things is when you cross in, in Istanbul and you, you leave Europe and you, at that point there weren't any bridges across the Bosphorus. You had to take a ferry over. But there was this feeling of you were stepping out of Europe and you were stepping into Asia. It really had a, a feel of change. And so it, Turkey, you know, and Turkey wasn't the tourist destination it is today, but in those days, there was a place in uh, Istanbul called the Pudding Shop, and everybody who came through would always, everybody, you had to go to the Pudding Shop. And they're still living off that today. Yeah, so Turkey was great. And we went to Goreme, and of course, Goreme was, you know, now it's big tourist, all the, I mean, the hot air balloons were still 15, 20 years away from arriving. Is that near Cappadocia? That, that is Cappadocia. Oh, Cappadocia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cappad- is sort of the main city in Cappadocia. Right. Um, so, yeah, we, um, 
We loved Turkey, and then, you know, Iran was fantastic. Isfahan, beautiful, beautiful city. Yeah. And Afghanistan was wonderful. Really? You know, although the great regret of my travel life, if I could turn the clock back and fix things, was I went to, we went to Afghanistan and traveled through it and went to Kabul, and we did not go up to Bamiyan to see the Bamiyan Buddhas. And I've got friends who were there pretty much, we didn't know them at the time, but they're pretty much at the same time. And they've given me copies of their photographs. Here we are at the Bamiyan Buddhas. Damn it. Why didn't I? Just, you know, we could have just spent a couple more days and gone up there and we didn't. So what are the Bamiyan Buddhas for people who oh, don't know? Oh, there were these amazing Buddhas that um, were back to the time of Alexandria the Great that were carved into this cliff face. And, um, you know, they were there for 2,000 years until a couple of months before 9-11 when the Taliban destroyed them. Oh, that's so devastating. Oh, horrific. And I, I, have, I have been to Bamiyan now, but I've been there about 2006 or eight or something, and there's no Buddhas there anymore. Oh, that's now, so I would sad. recreate them. I would make it, I would have, you know, Buddhists are great believers in reincarnating things. Mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd put them back up. They, they wouldn't be the, the original ones, mm-hmm. but you could, there's lots of photographs of them. You could make them again. Yeah. I would do that in a flash. <sighs> so chapter four is your all-time favorite destination how are you going to pick this one Tony? i'm not because that's a question that i i don't have a favorite place you know i've got lots of places i like going back to uh, my italy is off the off the cards at the moment but i'm supposed to go to sicily in uh, may hopefully it'll be sorted out by then yeah fingers um, crossed I love traveling around Australia, and Australia is a big enough country that despite, you know, I, I've actually had three, trip, three trips in Australia, no, two, um, this year already, wow. um, and I've got a third one coming up, all of which I've been to before, but, you know, I've also do, done trips, not every, there's lots of places in Australia I haven't been to yet, one of them which I went to last year and was fantastic. Which was? Torres Strait. Um, the uh, islands that um, go between the north of Australia and um, Papua New Guinea. Right. Um, and um, there's 274 of them, 14, wow. 12 or 14 with people living on them, but the rest uninhabited. And some of them are really, really beautiful. And they've got virtually no tourists at all, um, hardly anybody. Um, in fact, I have one of those really nice travel experiences that you have when you're at a place where there's no tourists. Um, I was on an island called Erub in the local dialect, or Darnley in English. Mm-hmm. I'd gone to the council office to get they got they all they all have a guest house where you can stay to get the keys to the guest house. And as I was going back to the guest house, somebody driving on the road picked me up and gave me a ride. And he said, um, what, "What else are you going to do while you're on the island?" You know, because they're no tourists, so he's interested to talk to me. And I said, well, I'm going to get, I'm, I'm probably going to walk down to the end of the island, it's not that far, to see the uh, the beach where the first uh, missionaries arrived. There's a monument there to the arrival of the light when Christianity came to these islands. <laughs> and this guy who just picked me up walking down the road said, he said, oh, he said, that's much too far to walk. He said, I live just beyond where your guest house is. And he said, and I get back from his watch. I get back from work at 1230. He said, I'll leave my car in my driveway with the keys in it. You can take my car. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, he didn't even know my name. That's Isn't that great? So you can wonderful. go to places in the world today where people will pick you up walking down the road and hand you the keys to their car. So I did. I, you know, about one o'clock, I walked over there and... Yes, the keys were in the car, and he wasn't around, but I got in his car, and I drove it down to the end of the island, only about 10 miles, looked at the beach, came back, put the car back in his driveway. I put $20 in the glove box to pay for the petrol. But, you know, fantastic. And was it beautiful there? 
Yeah, that was good. That was quite nice. Some of the other islands, one of them was just really, really beautiful, which I really wanted to see because it was so beautiful. And it's got some really interesting history. Um, we won't go into um, Terra Nullis and the British colonial era and so on, but you know, it's um, in- interesting islands. And where, where would you access it from? From Cairns. From Cairns. You go from Cairns up to um, Thursday Island, which is easy to get to. It's expensive, but... Um, um, easy to get to, but then it gets complicated beyond there because you need permits. and easy, The travel's easy enough, it's expensive, but um, the permits are complicated. A bit, bit more tricky. Mm. So do you like cities? Yeah, I'm, I'm a city per- I mean, I like the country as well, and I like... I'm not, I'm not a lie around on the beach. I'm a scuba diver, but mm. I'm not a lie around on the beach person. Mm-hmm. But um, beaches are okay. I, I love... Walking, you know, walking's great. So I do a fair amount of walking. And you live in Melbourne, right? I live in Melbourne. I live in a big, you know, Melbourne. It, I've been living in Melbourne for a long time. And I still think a bit of, when I first went to Melbourne, it was a city of around two to two and a half million, which is still a fair size. You know, it's got a population of five million now. It has doubled. It's one of the fastest growing first worlds. I mean, there's lots of places in China that have grown far faster than that. Mm. But um, first world cities, you know, it's one of the fastest growing in the world. Mm. And it's a great city. You know, it's got all sorts of um, plus points for it. I'm sure that people ask you all the time because you live there, you know, if they were coming to Melbourne, do you have any recommendations of one one or two things that they must do? Melbourne's very keen on its laneways and um, the little the bars that hang out and coffee bars and so on down the laneways. Um, you've got to go to, play, to places for the coffee. One of the things that Melburnians are very proud of is that Starbucks in Melbourne failed. They, they came into Melbourne and they opened about 20 and there's still a couple left because there's a lot of Chinese students. And one of the things about coming to the West is that Chinese students want Starbucks, but they're there for the Chinese. But other than that, Starbucks fell on its face because their coffee wasn't good enough. There's a real coffee culture. In it's a very strong coffee culture and um, very proud of the quality of their coffee and Starbucks does not cut it. So, uh, And that's the thing that Melbournians are proud of. Yeah, so, fantastic. you know, try the coffee culture, try the bars. There's lots of bars that are hidden away. You have to know which doorway to go through and upstairs. A lot of them are right out in the open, but hidden away bars. Um, Federation Square, which is the sort of centre of, of Melbourne, which is a it's got a gallery. There's two galleries and national galleries in Melbourne. The NGV, National Gallery of Victoria, the international one, which is a great gallery. has all the art you'd see in Europe, so you don't really need to go to Australia to see it. But the other one is just Australian art. Mm-hmm. And it's got a great Aboriginal art collection. It's got a great colonial um, Australian art collection. And it's got a great just Australian modern art, you know, all the phases it's moved through. Um, and, and a lot of temporary exhibits and so on. And, you know, I, I, in fact, when I, ha- I have visitors from overseas, the first place I take them to is the, um, is the Federation Square, NGV, because there you are, you get the, all the eras of modern, of Australian art Wonderful. from, you know, from the Aboriginal era right up to today. Mm, that sounds great. It is great. Great tips, yeah. thank you. And lots of other things in Melbourne. So chapter five is your hidden gem. I can't imagine how many hidden gems you must have uncovered over the years. One that stands out? Well, we were talking about Plovdiv, so, you know, I definitely nominate Plovdiv as a city in Europe. And there's lots of cities in Europe that people just don't go to. There's lots of Britain that people don't go to, lots of Britain I haven't been to. You know, I haven't been, except briefly, to Wales in years. I've really got to travel around Wales. I was just 
sending a message to somebody in Wales this morning before you arrived. But, you know, there's lots of second cities in Europe that are great to go to. And one of the ones I went to last year, which just blew me away. I, for two, two years in a row, I'd been to this travel event in Rimini, um, Italian city, Adriatic coast, very nice, where um, Fellini came from. Mm-hmm. But just north of Rimini, only a half an hour train ride or something, is Ravenna which is famous for its mosaics. And I knew about Ravenna, and I love mosaics. I'm a, I'm a sucker for mosaics, whether they're you know, Roman ones in Morocco or Turkey or wherever. Great mosaics in Britain. Um, but Ravenna I hadn't been to. So on my way to Rimini last year, I stopped off in Ravenna for a couple of nights. I was blown away. These, these churches, which were you know, early Christian, they were wonderful. The mosaics were wonderful. And again, if anything, this was under-touristed. I thought, here am I admiring this beautiful church, and there are one or two other tourists here, but I'm not, it's not like being in Venice, you know, fighting elbow to elbow. But you're only in Venice, it's only in St. Mark's Square. So Ravenna, wonderful. Wow. I'd recommend it. How did you find out about it? I've got you no know, Lonely Planet book says, you know, go to Ravenna for the mosaics. <laughs> but also being in Rimini and two years in a row, people in Rimini were saying, you know, while you were here, did you stop in Ravenna on the way? No, I didn't. So next year, second time, I did stop in Ravenna on the way. I love that you refer to your Lonely Planet guides regularly still. I still I use them. You know, I, 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 I use them, I've got to admit, more on digital form rather than print these days. But I do, I've got, there's two trips I'm doing this year, which I will take along the print guide because I'll be opening it and closing it often enough that it's worth doing. Which are those? One of them is Greece. So the, the other one, <laughs> coronavirus, who knows? But we do have a trip with some friends to the Greek islands later this year. Lovely. And, we're going to, and I've, I've been there before, but I'm going to some islands I haven't been to before. And um, I will have the Lonely Planet Greek Islands book at my elbow. Fantastic. Well, I know that you said that you love all places, so you might find this a hard one to answer. What do I hate? Chapter uh, six, the place that you'd never go back to. You know, and I, I'm getting too much mileage out of this one. It's really unfair. Um, but I, I did last year finally go to the Maldives or Maldives or something. I'm, I'm never sure which way to pronounce it. The Maldi- pronounce I say the Maldives. I say the Maldives. And I was well. also there just a few weeks ago, so we can swap notes. Right. What do you, did you nev- think? Well, I'd like to hear what you thought first. I, I just, I was bored silly. Really? Um, yeah. And, um, and it was my own fault. Uh, I, I really, I've, I've got, there is a, an author, it might be a Lonely Planet author, but someone has written a book about traveling around island to island, which you can do now. You couldn't once upon a time. You know, they didn't want, they wanted tourists go to resorts and don't possibly interact with the locals. But you can now go island to island Stay with locals. And stay on local islands. Yeah, and I didn't do that. Did you do that? No. No. Um, And there's lots of resorts. And I was there for a week. And what I should really have done is had three days in one resort and two days in another and two days in a third. Then it makes seven days. And I'd seen three different resorts. And foolishly, we, we just went to one resort and stayed there. And after a couple of days, I'd had it with this resort. I'd seen everything I ever needed to see on this I'd walked around it and I'd... Because some are very, very small, aren't they? This, this was pretty small. Yeah. Um, and um, the scuba diving was not, certainly not bad, but there was, this is a scuba diving centre and I was the only person on this island scuba diving. You know, I went out in the boat and I had the dive master and everybody else to myself. Mm. Yeah, it was absurd. But what did you think of the diving? I wasn't knocked out by it. You, so where, where have you had better diving, um, would you say? Australia, um, 
um, certainly Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Indonesia. Indonesia, mm. much better scuba diving in Indonesia than they had in the mall. But then, you know, I've only, I was only at one... In one uh, reef, like yeah, in one yeah. atoll. Yeah, so I wasn't knocked out by that. And so it's my own fault. But on the other hand, you know, I don't need to go back. Mm. And part of it was I'd, I'd flown over it. You know, if you fly between Dubai and Australia, you very often go over the Maldives, mm -hmm. the Maldives, and you look down and you see them if you're there on daylight hours. Um, and I sort of, oh, there they are down there. And I'd been to Sri Lanka and I'd been to southern India, so I was quite close. But, yeah, I really had to go there. But having been there, I'm not in a hurry to go back. Yeah. So did you like it? Well, I was there on my honeymoon. Oh, well, that's it. It's a honeymoon resort. Yeah. yeah and I did go to two different places, which Good, I think yeah. um, meant that I got to experience kind of two different feels, two different yeah. vibes, two different architectural styles, different food. But a friend of mine went there recently and stayed on a local island. Um, and she was telling me how she went out on boats with local fishermen, squid yeah. fishing, where they'd grab the fish, uh, the squid with their hands yeah, and yeah, um, yeah. then cooked it on the beach. And, yeah. and um, she asked me if I had had a traditional Maldivian breakfast, which was freshly caught tuna with coconut in a leaf. Yeah. And, I, I, and I had to say, actually, I didn't even know that was the traditional Maldivian breakfast. So I, I got to experience a kind of sugar-coated, very yeah. luxe version of it, which I, I loved for a honeymoon, but I didn't yeah, really yeah. experience the Maldives necessarily. You know, but honeymoons, yeah. you can do all sorts of things that you, that yeah. you um, don't need to do later on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I, I, and I, I was not there on my honeymoon, and um, no, I'm sorry, it just didn't cut the cut it for me so chapter seven tony is your next big adventure so where are you traveling to um, coming I'm, up next week i'm going to socotra with simon calder um, a previous podcast alumni yeah you know and simon and i have done a few trips together and um you know you can count on simon being up for weird things and <laughs> yeah. this was a trip he sort of organized and he said you know do this, do that. And he said, and I'll meet you in um, Cairo. It's um, Cairo Airport at 2 a.m. Bring a $1,000 US in cash to pay for the flight. And I thought, that sounds like the right sort of trip. I'll, I'll go for that. <laughs> so where is Socotra? Well, technically, it's part of Yemen. Um, right. And Yemen, do you know if I... Oh, is it the island off Yemen? Yeah, it is, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's been defined as the... It's um, very wild and inaccessible. The Galapagos of the Indian Ocean. Yeah. But then the Galapagos, it's animals, whereas... Um, Socotra, it's the vegetation, which is the attraction. But I mean, I've always known about it, and, and I've, you know, I've also always known about Yemen. And I've always said the place I haven't been to that I really should have been to, apart from the Bamiyan Buddhas, um, is Yemen. You know, Yemen's always fascinated me, and I've always wanted to go to Yemen. And we won't really go to Yemen this trip. We just sort of... Is it safe to go to Yemen at the moment? No, probably not. Yeah. No, it's not. Um, but, you know, Medicine Sans Frontier, they go there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's possible. But, you know, Yemen has never been totally safe, but it's been a little bit safer, very unsafe. It goes up and down like a yo-yo, and it's more down in the very unsafe thing due to people like Britain and um, Saudi Arabia and America who we want, and UAE, who we will not talk about. Um, you know, so Yemen is still going to be on my list. But anyway, I'm going to Socotra next week. So we're on to our final chapter, and that is chapter eight, which is what is at the top of your bucket list. Your well, travel Yemen, you know, I have, I've never been to Yemen. Places that are on your bucket list are very often places you haven't been to before. You can go back. I, I was in Japan just a couple of weeks ago, and I was in the area where the Kimano Kodo is, which is a walking track, and it's got a relationship with the 
Camino Santiago in Spain, which I haven't walked. You know, that's another thing. It's on my bucket list, effectively, walking that one day. But also there's places that I've never been to in uh, at all. So I'd like to go to them just because I've never been there. And one of them, which I thought I was going to get to this year, I, I've traveled around the Caribbean a bit and I lived in the Bahamas for a couple of years and I've, I've been to Cuba several times and really enjoyed traveling around Cuba. But I'd never been to Jamaica. Why not? You know, I'm like everybody else. I'm a Bob Marley fan. Why haven't I been to Jamaica? I love it. Well, Yemen and Jamaica. There we Some go. fantastic bucket places. list experiences mm, yeah. there. Two places I've not been yet. Well, thank you so much, Tony. It was such a pleasure chatting to you, hearing about your incredible life of travels. Those were your travel diaries. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. That was Tony Wheeler, the founder of Lonely Planet and True Travel Royalty. And that marks the end of season two. Thank you all for listening to this season and for your support. I'll be back next week with a bonus Best of British episode. And I hope to be back with season three in the summer. In the meantime, I'd love to hear your feedback on this season and what you'd like from the next. I'm at Holly Rubenstein on Instagram and Twitter. So let's stay in touch. And make sure you hit subscribe so you know when the next season begins. Take care, everyone. I'll speak to you soon. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.